Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Okay, well, good, good morning once again. And so just right up front, we're starting this brand new series called Parenting in the 21st Century. This is actually a, a sermon series that Andy Stanley did that was really, really good. And, and we just thought you guys need to hear this. And so this is our attempt to share it with you. Um, and so... Uh, thank you so much for joining us. If this is your first time here, uh, we certainly hope it's not your last time, and, and this is a great time uh, to be here with us because we're, we're at the front end of this brand new series, at least for the next couple of weeks, and, and I want to talk to parents and grandparents and future parents and aunts and uncles and anybody who feels the weight and responsibility of equipping an infant, a child, a teenager, a middle schooler, or a high schooler for life. Now today and for the next two weeks, I want to talk about parenting. And Andy Stanley's wife, as they will counsel people uh, in their church, um, she often is with Andy as they do, as they talk with just families and parents. And she is, uh, Andy quotes Sandra Stanley as saying, "Um, the days are long, but the years are short. The days are long, but the years are short. And this is, this is oh so true. I mean, on the front end, you feel like you have plenty of time with parenting, and then you blink, and they're 10, and then they're graduating from middle school, and then they're gone. Oh, no. And, and, and you think, oh, no, are they, are they really ready? Did I tell them everything that they needed to know? Did I prepare them for life? And the answer to that question is always no. No, you didn't. You probably forgot a few things, uh, a few really important things along the way, which is understandable because, hey, you were busy. You know, you were busy parenting. And like first-time fathers and mothers, I I will never forget the terror, and I think that's the right word, the the terror that that I, I felt when you're in the hospital and the nurse, you know, hands you your baby for the first time, and you parents in the room you'll you'll remember this when after you spend a couple two or three days in the hospital and the nurse escorts you out of the hospital with your brand new baby for the first time um and you're like oh no what were they thinking i you know i knew what i was thinking i was thinking like um surely one of you nurses will come home with us and and like what do we do with this brand new baby and and I, i think that's the first time it dawned on me that just because I have a parent doesn't mean that I know anything about being one. And maybe more to the point, just because I was a kid once, it doesn't mean that I know anything about raising one. And so you'll remember this, some of you, so you're sitting in the car, the doors are closed, you, you, you don't know what you're doing, it's terror, I, I think it's really just terror, there's some excitement mixed in there, um, but there's, there's terror for sure, and the nurse, she just stood there and she's waving goodbye as you, you know, get your baby put in the car seat and you, you pull out and, and away from the hospital, and um, we, we, we figured it out, but we didn't figure it out on our own. Lori and I were sponges, like many of you were. We were sponges for good parenting advice, whether it came from books or videos or friends or even experts. And honestly, we had an advantage that most people don't have. Shortly after having our two babies, I began serving here as a student pastor at our church, which meant I had the opportunity to oversee our middle school and high school students. And really, back when I first started, our children's ministry students as well. 
at that time, which meant we had lots of interactions with kids and their parents. And we, we had lots of interactions with parents. We saw some great examples, and, and we saw what, what we consider, honestly, some really bad examples of parenting. But when we saw parents who had a healthy relationship with their teenagers, we were not shy about asking them questions about parenting, about how to do our best. Like what, what, and what we were really asking the, the parents for is, hey, give us your map to parenting. Like, you know, how did you get them from the car seat in the hospital to the driver's seat uh, when they turned 16 with, with your relationship intact? And the relationship was so important to us because, again, we'd see so many parents through the years undermine their relationship with their kids, and nobody does that on purpose, and nobody, nobody has a plan to undermine their relationship with their teenagers or their adult kids, but we saw it over and over and over again, and when we saw parents who got it right or who did it right, we wanted to know, how, how did you do that? What did you do? What's your secret to success? And, and every time we would ask these parents for advice, they would just kind of look at at each other and they would shrug and, and say things like, well, you know, we, we don't know, we just, we just loved our, our kids. But we knew better. They had a map, they had an approach, they had some habits, but it, it was so intuitive to them, they oftentimes couldn't verbalize it back to us. But Lori and I were students and we were serious about figuring this out. And to some extent, we were afraid, right? Because we wanted to get it right. And here's, here's what we noticed. There are a few things that we, that we notice up front with the parents who seem to have been able to maintain a strong relationship, even through the middle school and high school years. And one of the things that was true of almost all of them is that the parents, they had fewer rules. They had fewer rules than the parents whose kids were always in trouble for breaking the rules. Uh, and one of the things that we noticed when, when we did middle school and high school ministry together was how many kids were always on restriction. They were always on restriction and they were being restricted from things that, you know, they were, they were, they, these kids sometimes would come in and they were grounded all the time. And one of the things that I, I really scr- scratched my head at, at, at is parents who have grounded their kids from coming to church. Like, I mean, I, I get it if your kids love coming to church and they got in trouble, um, for being a knucklehead for some reason, and you, you've got to hit them where it hurts, right? But I'm just here, please, like, please don't ground your kids from Jesus, okay? That's never a good thing. And in our experience, the kids that are always getting grounded, they never really got any better. They, they, they were always in trouble, you know, they were, they, were, they were always the troublemakers and they were always in trouble. But when we talked to parents who had been able to maintain these strong relationships with their kids, even through the middle school and high school years, we discovered that none of them, virtually none of them, ever used restriction or grounding as a tool to discipline their kids. And so we're gonna come back to that later. Okay, later in the series. But the, the other thing that we noticed about these extraordinary parents who seem to have gotten it right is, and this may sound strange, but they were not afraid of their children. They were, they were not afraid of their kids. Now, if you don't have children, that may sound strange to your, to your ears today, but I'm telling you, it, it is easy for parents to become afraid of their children. And when you fear your children, your children are just by the nature of the fact that you're afraid of them or you fear them or you fear their response to you, the kids then become in charge of the relationship. They are in charge in some cases of the marriage. 
But these unique parents, they did not fear the rejection of, of their kids, and so oft, oftentimes what parents fear, they fear the rejection of their kids, and they, they weren't afraid to discipline their children, but again, they didn't discipline their children in the traditional ways that parents often discipline their children. And again, we're, we're gonna come back to that point later on in the series. Here's the other thing. I, I, I don't know exactly how to say this, so if you'll just give me a minute to kind of work through this. These extraordinary parents discovered, I, I think the, is the best word, is they actually spent time discovering, or they discovered and then they facilitated their kids' interest, their kids' strengths and their kids' talents, rather than, and this is key, rather than forcing or insisting that their children embrace what was most interesting to or what came naturally to the parents. In other words, instead of the athletic dad insisting that his son become an athlete or his, or his daughter become an athlete, instead they stood back and they were students of their kids and they figured out the direction, the natural flow of their children and then they invested in the natural flow rather than trying to force something onto their kids or force them into something. And again, we've, we've all seen parents do the opposite of that. And, and again, we've all seen where that leads. In fact, maybe that's your story growing up. Your mom had a special interest and she wanted you as her daughter to embrace what was interesting to her, but you weren't interested in that. And again, what happened there was, was relational friction, right? Somehow these wise parents that we're talking about this morning, they, they avoided all of that. Another thing that we noticed about these parents is that they resisted the temptation to involve their kids in everything. Not only were they not afraid of their children, they, they didn't fear their children missing out on something. In other words, and here's how, how I'll say this, they prioritized relationship over experience. They prioritized their relationship with their kids and their kids' relationships with each other over any experience. They prioritize the experiences that they can experience together as a, as a family over the experiences that sent everybody in a hundred different directions trying to get everything done. And then there was one other thing, and it's, it's what I want to really kind of spend the, the, the rest of our time discussing today. And, and as we got to know these families through the years, um, we noticed that all of them had what we would consider healthy marriages. Not perfect, because we all know that there is no perfect marriage, but healthy. In fact, we, we walked away from these multiple conversations convinced that the best parenting tool of all, perhaps the best gift that we could give to our children, is a healthy marriage. And for some of you, that's when you put down your pen and you stop taking notes this morning. And I understand, I understand that because if a healthy marriage is a part of the parenting equation, if it's an important part of parenting, then that might be bad news for you or discouraging news for you because it's out of reach for you. In fact, it's so discouraging, and I've been doing this for so long, it's, it's so discouraging that honestly, I, I, I'm tempt, I was tempted to skip this part of the series. As you can imagine, it would be easier to just leave marriage out, out of the conversation about parenting and, and know this and you, you know this for years, that there's been a push to do just that, to, to really to divorce 
parenting from marriage, and honestly, the parenting conversation is certainly easier. It's more comfortable. It's more politically correct. If we just set aside the notion of a nuclear family, a phrase that we don't use that much anymore, the nuclear family is simply just a mother and a father and children all living together under one roof. And it's easier to isolate parenting to a standalone topic. But to do that, and and here's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, to isolate parenting from marriage is actually to steal something valuable from the current and the next generation. To isolate parenting from marriage is to steal something valuable from your children and your grandchildren. To, To do so is to remove Um, it's, It's not only to remove the bullseye, it's like removing the entire target and hopefully that will become clear here in the next few minutes. Now, that, that brings us to this uncomfortable tension that we've already, we're already kind of beginning to feel this morning. And it, it's this tension between what's real and what's ideal. What's real and what's ideal. It's an uncomfortable tension because for many of us, ideal, when we talk about family and marriage, ideal is seemingly out of reach. And it would be more comfortable again, to just uh, put it out of sight. The, the, the part of the role of a pastor from time to time is to step into the emotional, the uncomfortable, and perhaps even the dangerous role of a prophet and to plant my feet and my heart and honestly my compassion right in the middle of what's real while pointing to what's the ideal and to, and to ignore reality. And again, it's easy to do this when we talk about something like marriage, but to ignore reality leaves us or leaves me speaking or teaching in such a way that doesn't take into consideration the, the families that we have and the family dynamics that people in the real world are actually trying to navigate. And it leaves the impression, if we, if we don't deal with what's real, it leaves the impression that the message of Jesus, and this is so important, To to not delve into what's real, what's actual, is to leave the impression that the message of Jesus has no real bearing on real life. To ignore the current reality, your current reality, leaves us with a static kind of stained glass religion removed from reality. Church and sermons become nothing more than reminders of somebody else's reality. Standards that we will never attain to a world that we'll, that we'll never attain to, to a world that, that no longer exists, if it ever existed in the first place. So, for a discussion on parenting to be relevant, we have to take into account what's real, which again should be really easy for Christians, and, and this may come as a shock to you this morning. In fact, this may be offensive um, to some, but of all the people in the world when it comes to embracing what's really going on with families and marriages, this should be second nature to us as Christians because there, there are virtually no, as in, as in none, there are virtually no good examples of family in the entire Bible when it comes to illustrations of real-world family dysfunction. The Bible is actually your go-to source. <clears throat> so just think about, think, think about this. Think about the first family. You, you, you remember them, Adam and Eve. Yeah, they were, they were pretty much a disaster. Think about it. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. If you're a Christian, this is what we believe, that sin, all sin in the world, entered through the first married couple before they even had kids. And then they immediately started blaming each other. 
who was at fault. And, and we don't know much about their kids, but we do know this, that one of their sons murders his brother, and then we're off to the races, right? The human races. And just about every Old Testament story involving family is bad. In fact, just about every Old Testament story that deals with family is horrible by modern standards. So the point being this, that the church, we should be really good at taking into account the realities of family life, taking into consideration what's actually going on, taking into consideration what's actually going on in any conversation about parenting because our book, our text, the Bible, is full of bad examples. But at the same time, and this is what makes this conversation so fascinating and actually so helpful, at at the same time, the authors of the New Testament paint a picture of what could be and what should be. What could be and what should be as it relates to family. And they actually actually point us to what is ideal while they, they clearly embrace the reality of what's happening in the world. They also, they also point us to the ideal, and we shouldn't be surprised because they knew and God knew what we intuitively know, and it's simply this, that if we remove the ideal from the equation, if we remove the ideal from the family equation simply because it's out of reach for some of us or out of reach for some in this generation, that simply ensures that it will remain out of reach for many in the next generation. And part of our responsibility as parents and grandparents is to give our kids and our grandparents something to aim for, something to live for, and most importantly, something to decide towards. Now, when it came to living and teaching in the messy middle between what's real and what's ideal, Jesus was the master. He navigated during his entire ministry this tension between between real and ideal, and he clung to this tension, and he didn't abandon it. But then, of course, he did, because the gospel, the gospel doesn't begin this way. The gospel doesn't begin once upon a time in a perfectly ordered world where everyone always did the right thing. The gospel, Christianity, begins like this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So the gospel assumes sin. The gospel assumes that we're going to get it wrong. The gospel assumes real while while it points the ideal that Christ showed up in a perfectly disordered world where ideals seemed out of reach. And honestly for everyone, the gospel begins with this, for God so loved the world. Which world? Not the Garden of Eden world, our world, your world. My world are broken and perfect, less than ideal world. And so the tension between real and ideal was embedded within just about every single one of Jesus' parables that he told. He would say things like this. He would say things like, the kingdom of God is like this. And and his disciples would say, say, yeah, but but Jesus, this isn't the, the kingdom of God, to which he would then smile and say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. And then Jesus, he would pivot once again and he would point to the ideal. He would say things like this, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, to which his audience would always say, yeah, yes, we have heard that actually. And Jesus would say, but I tell you, 
Anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To which they would say, we had not heard that part, Jesus. And honestly, that makes us feel bad about ourselves. So please don't say that anymore. Right? And that's just unrealistic. But he kept saying things like that. He kept consistently pointing beyond the lowest common denominator to ideal. He gave people in his audience, and he gives us something to aspire to. And then he, would, then he would bump into people who fell short, unlike the religious leaders of his day, and he did not condemn them. In fact, Jesus condemned the condemners, and then he would die for the condemned. Instead of lowering the standard, he, he turned up the grace. He redefined adultery and made every man an adulterer, and then he paid for their adultery. And when religious leaders attempted to trap him and use his own words during a discussion regarding divorce, Jesus, and this is amazing, Jesus raises the marriage standard so high that he slammed the door on a man's opportunity of, or freedom to kind of wiggle out of his responsibility to his family. In fact, Jesus raised the bar so high, he pointed so intuitively he, he, and, and, and so pointedly to the ideal that when he finished talking about marriage and divorce, when he finished the discussion and they walked away, the apostles, the 12 that followed him everywhere, they looked at each other and here's how they responded. They said, wow, if this situation between a husband and a wife, if this is the situation be between the two, it, it's better not to marry. In other words, Jesus, you made it sound so permanent but Jesus, that's unrealistic. And, you know, things happen, people change, to which Jesus would have said, I know, that's why I'm here. And so, so Jesus, let me get this straight. So you're against divorce. Of course I'm against divorce. Divorce hurts people. Divorce breaks people. Divorce leaves broken lives. Divorce leaves wounds. Of course I'm against divorce. Well, then, Jesus, what are you going to do about divorce people? I'm going to give my life for them. And this is the tension that we find. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is why if you've walked away from faith, perhaps you should reconsider. <clears throat> Jesus never dumbed down the truth, but he always turned up the grace. And here's the fascinating thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who knew Jesus well, <clears throat> who spent three and a half years with Jesus, heard everything he taught, saw all the miracles. John said it, 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 it was so remarkable that John writes, one of my favorite things that, that, that anyone said, Jesus, John writes, looking back over my time with Jesus, having watched him deal with real people who were dealing with real life situations, situations for which there were no easy answers, no quick fixes, John says this, that it was remarkable. Day in and day out, Jesus would point these people who were living with real difficulties to the ideal. He consistently pointed people to, to the ideal while helping them to navigate what they were facing and living through and living with in their lives. And again, as an old man looking back on his time with Jesus, John summarizes his time with Jesus with these familiar and powerful words. Here's what he writes. He said, the word, speaking of God, he said, God came to live with us. The word became flesh. He camped out with us. He dwelt among us. He didn't send us more rules and regulations from afar. He became one of us. He navigated our reality with us. He showed up in human form. He moved in with us and he says, and we have seen his glory. 
To which the Old Testament scholars in the first century, Jewish scholars would say, no, 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 you haven't seen the glory. No one can see God's glory and live. And John's like, look, I'm just a normal guy, and I'm just telling you what we saw. We saw the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And then this next phrase, I think, summarizes in so many ways what kind of, of Christian and what kind of person I want to be. In fact, if you've lost your faith, perhaps it's because nobody ever explained to you this part about Jesus. John writes, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus was not a balance of grace and truth. He had a full dose of grace. He had a full dose of truth. Jesus was all grace and he was all truth all the time. And again, he didn't dumb down the truth to make us feel better about ourselves, but he never turned down the grace either. Again, that's the kind of Christian, that's the kind of person I want to be. But here's the problem. Truth without grace, and I know this from personal experience, that truth without grace creates pretenders and hypocrites. But grace without truth creates some kind of permissive version of faith that ultimately hurts everybody in the end. But grace and truth is personified and illustrated by Jesus, and it's powerful. And then John wraps up this passage with this, and again, so much of this could be unpacked here. He, he, he says this, for the law, talking about the Jewish law, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And this is so powerful. It, it was Jesus who introduced this tension between grace and truth and then lived in it rather than kind of leaning one way or leaning the other. And here's the thing, as this as dynamic as this is and, and as, as inviting as this is, this is a difficult thing to live out, and yet it's what we've been called to live out as Christians. And it's what we've been called to model corporately. I mean, come on. The church is the body of Christ, and as his body, it's our responsibility. This is our role in culture. This is how we serve as conscience and comfort in our communities and in our nation. And I mean, you, you, you know what the conscience does, right? A conscience from time to time will make us feel bad about ourselves. But a properly informed conscience is also what keeps us from, from losing our way, keeps us from losing our bearings. Our conscience tells us when we veered off into dangerous territory, it reminds us that we're about to undermine our own future and the future of those who depend on us. So back to parenting and marriage. Let's get uncomfortably specific. Here's the ideal. Ideal is parents raising their children together under one roof. Communities don't raise children. Parents raise children. Communities are simply a, the context for raising children and in communities, whether they're rural or urban or suburban communities, whether, where, where the nuclear family is the exception rather than the rule, you know what happens? The government is forced to step in and help raise children. Local schools are forced to feed children. Agencies are created to protect children. We all know that, and we all want better than that. We want better than that for each other, and we want better than that for the next generation. Communities don't raise kids but they certainly set expectations for kids for good or for bad. And it's why some of you in our community have gone to great lengths and honestly great expense to ensure that our children are being raised in a community 
that affirms your values. And this is so important, and I would just add that you are to be celebrated for this. You've gone to great lengths to make sure that your kids are being raised in communities that affirm your values, even when your particular situation might fall short of what you value, and you are to be so committed for that. In fact, we really have designed our, our, our churches to partner with you in the process of raising your, your, your kids. We want to echo and, and repeat and, and um, all of the things and the, the, the truths that you would value in your relationship with your kids. We want to be another voice in that. We, wanna, we want better for your kids because we want uh, because you want better for your kids. You don't want to be told that everything is fine so you'll feel better about yourself because you're smart and you love your kids and you know better. And so every once in a while, we all need to be reminded of what should be and what could be, maybe not what can be for us, but what could be and should be for our children. That's good parenting. And every once in a while, we all need to be coaxed back into this tension between what's real and what's ideal. So when it comes to parenting, marriage matters. And any attempt to downplay the importance of marriage, to downplay its role, is just misguided. Not because of the, not because of the dynamic that it creates within a particular family, but because it robs children of an opportunity to aspire for and to decide toward the ideal. Now, I think, again, one of the reasons that I have maybe have so much energy around this is because of something that happened to me um, in my life. My parents were divorced when I was very young. My dad had an affair uh, on, on my mom, and um, it messed up our family. Uh, and as a little kid, you don't understand that. Uh, so, you know, as you grow and get older and you, you, you begin to understand the way things are and why things are the way that they are, you know, you, you can begin to wrap your head around it as you get older, right? But um, if that's where my story ended, at the, you know, when my parents divorced, then, or not ended, but that's, that's where this view of family that I had as a, as a young kid, if that's kind of, if that was my ideal, the man cheats on the wife and then gets to leave and go live with another family, that, that, that's what was real. But as a kid, if that's my only understanding, well, that's the world that I'm growing up in. That's the, the picture of marriage that I had painted for me. And I just, um, and, and honestly, it, I think it went back another generation. I think my grandpa, my, my dad was living out what his dad had lived out. Stories of, of an affair with grandpa. And all I knew is when I got married, I wanted to break that cycle. Well, how did I know that I wanted to break that cycle? Because my story didn't end with the divorce of my parents. My mom actually found a wonderful guy who they fell in love and got married and had a couple more kids. And I grew up in a house where my mom and my stepdad loved each other. We're not perfect by any stretch. But I grew up in this house where I now knew what the ideal 
marriage was that a man and a woman love each other through thick or thin. Affairs are not a part of the equation. We're going to work our problems out. And for I, I have four brothers, so there were five boys in our house, and we all grew up looking to mom and pop as an ideal. This is, this is what we know marriage to be, right? And so I, here's, here's where I would, I would lead you this morning. So I, I just encourage you to ask and answer this terrifying question. What breaks your heart? And, and as it turns out, kids growing up without a picture of what could be and should be as it relates to marriage and family broke Laura and I's hearts. And, and when you see something that breaks your heart, you should do something about it, right? It, 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 so that's why fostering uh, kids is so important. That's why adopting children is so important. It's, it's why when you, when you see something that you can do to help uh, young families and young children, you should step in and do something. And so, so Lori and I had a, an opportunity to do this a couple years ago. Um, there was a student in our youth group that became homeless. Um, and they were 16 years old at the time. And we were like, no, that's, you can come live with us. And, so he, and that's what, what happened for a couple of years the student came and, and lived with us. Now, why would we do that? Because his situation broke our hearts. And we had the ability to, to help out. His situation was real. It was not ideal, right? And, yet, and so we saw this thing happening. It breaks our hearts, and we have an opportunity to step in and show him, for the couple of years that he was with us, maybe, hopefully, what the ideal can look like. And as you know, there are tens of thousands of children in, in our country alone who will not aim for ideal because they don't even know what the ideal is. They don't even know that it exists. They never, they've never seen it and they've never experienced it. They don't even know that it's out there. And here's really the point of this opening session of this series. To, to do or support anything or to do or support anything that removes ideal from the equation, from the conversation, from the culture, to downplay the importance of parents raising their kids together simply because it seems too ideal, too American, too Western, too traditional, to remove that from the equation because it's too ideal is stealing. It's stealing the future of our future generation, and, and it's a mistake that we will pay for for generations. And make no mistake about this, women and children well, they always pay the highest price when we do this. They always do. So, so yeah, it, it, it was tempting to just jump right into some parenting tips in a sermon. That would have been easier, safer, certainly less potential to be misunderstood, but that would have been irresponsible because parenting is first and foremost about preparing our children for their future, which requires us to cast a compelling vision for their future, what could and should be for them regardless of where our lives have taken us. A vision for them academically, a vision for them financially, spiritually, and maybe most importantly, relationally. Our, our, our shortcomings as parents, and we all have them, right? Our shortcomings, if we leverage them wisely, can serve as a catalyst for our children to climb to heights that perhaps are out of reach for us, and if they do, that's a win. <clears throat> it's a win for them, and it's a win for us. 
It's a win for our community. So while we navigate what's real, let's not give up on ideal and let's instill a dream in our hearts and minds of this next generation that positions them to live better lives and perhaps make the world a better place. And let's resist the voices in our culture that have the potential to steal the dream of family from our kids. There will always be a tension between what's real and what's ideal. And and we dare not resolve it. To resolve it is to lose something. So when it comes to family, let's resolve not to resolve the tension. Let's live in it. Let's parent in it. Let's follow Jesus through it. After all, he came and made his dwelling among us, and he was full of grace and truth. Think about it, talk about it, argue about it, and we will pick up this discussion right here next time in part two of Parenting in the 21st Century. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, creating us, um, for giving us parents. Um, God, I'm thankful for um, the, the people in the room that ha- have had great experiences with parenting, had a good example of what parenting should be in their lives. And my heart's broken for people in the room that, that, that have grown up in less than ideal situations um, as kids. And God, I'm just... Thank you for this message this morning that uh, Jesus uh, and the scriptures paint a picture for us of what the ideal is. Help us to lean in to what that is, to understand it, to live it out in our lives, to step into places that are, that are broken, situations that are, that are broken and, and help um, paint a, a, a better picture for children of what ideal is and that they can attain that for themselves. What a great responsibility that is. Um, thank you for grace and forgiveness for when we fall short of that. Thank you for truth. Help, help pointing us to, to what is the ideal. God, give us the strength to do what's right and to be a great example for the world to see because you get the light, you get the glory. Um, through that as we as we live out the ideal in our lives so we we just uh, trust you for that this morning and pray these things in jesus name amen